Hello and welcome back to Slayhouse Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me this week, I have my esteemed guest, Jenny Kiefer. Jenny Kiefer is a Kentucky native and an avid rock climber. Together with her mother, she is the owner and manager of Butcher Cabin Books, an all-horror bookstore in Louisville, Kentucky. This Wretched Valley is her debut novel. She has stories published in Pseudopod, Cosmic Horror Monthly, and Fantasy and Science Fiction. Welcome, Jenny. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about This Wretched Valley, because uh, just to get it out there in the open as we start, uh, this book absolutely fucking terrified me. And (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I have a lot of things I kind of want to ask about about this book. So um, before we kind of get into talking about your book specifically, I kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about you and, you know, some of your background as a writer um, and certainly as owner of Butcher Cabin Books, which is a really interesting kind of uh, boutique bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I've um, always lived in Kentucky, um, I think, like, besides, like, a few months um, when I was, like, studying abroad or I think I lived in Nashville for a very brief period of time before I came back, but um, Kentucky native, um, lived here most of my life, um, went to school here, um, have an undergraduate degree at Western Kentucky University in creative writing, um, and a master's degree from the University of Louisville, just in English, but I focused in creative writing, and um, that kind of really taught me that I did not want to pursue an MFA. Yeah, so I've just always been in Kentucky. So I think pretty probably all of my books will be set in Kentucky um, because that's what I know. And I think it's a location that few other authors really explore. I I think it's really interesting that you set so much of your fiction in Kentucky because, you know, like you say, I think that there are stories that are centered in Appalachia, but I don't know that there are too terribly many of them and there are certainly not as many set you know kind of in like a speculative Mm -hmm. genre or this kind of commercial fiction yeah I mean there's um there's a a, actually a pretty good number of Kentucky horror authors and there's a lot that live in Louisville but um like Andrew Schaefer um lives in Louisville here and he wrote Secret Santa but as far as I know that's not specifically set in Kentucky Um, And I think most of his other work is like, he does like thrillers or like political murder mysteries. Um, And then there's J.H. Mark Carrot, who's just starting to publish um, some horror stuff. I think his other work was like maybe more literary or speculative under James Mark Carrot. And he has one coming out, I think, on Tuesday called Mr. Lullaby. Um, But he he lives in Louisville and um, Lee Mandalo, Mandelo. I don't know how to pronounce their name, but they just moved from Lexington to Louisville. Can Laurel Hightower, of course, is in Kentucky. Right. Todd Kiesling is from Kentucky, and I think Devil's Creek is set in Kentucky. But yeah, I think it's kind of like not as explored as some other places in even the United States. Like you said, there's a lot in Appalachia, but I think Kentucky is underutilized <laughs> as a horror setting. Which is kind of interesting because... As I think that this wretched valley 
explores uh there's there's a lot of potential for for mm-hmm. horror there um and i i do want to get into that in just a little bit but you say that you didn't really want to go into the mfa program and i'm a little curious as to why that is because i certainly have my feelings about higher education and whether or not you actually need a lot of these different degrees um mm-hmm. but it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about your experience and say that you know the mfa really wasn't a road for you yeah um well when i graduate i graduated from um western creative writing in like 2011 um so I'm very old (laughs) but I graduated from there in 2011 I had actually applied to some MFA programs and didn't get in and then I um you know just worked for a while um like they weren't exciting jobs they weren't using weren't really using my um, writing very much and so um I decided I wanted to go back to school so I applied to the University of Louisville because it was like a local school and their master's program um it wasn't they had a master's program in English and it's actually focused in rhetoric and composition um but I was able to sort of focus in um creative writing they had some like actual workshop classes and they had like a creative writing pedagogy class um and so I applied for that and I got in and it was during that program. And I think it was because it was like actually a rhetoric and composition program. So I had to kind of gear. Um, so for some of the required classes that I had to take, I had to kind of like figure out how I could make um, like the final projects about creative writing. And that ended up turning into doing this deep dive into creative writing pedagogy, which is like the um, science of teaching and really just learning that um, really just learning that there hasn't really been that much um, discussion or at the time there wasn't that much research or discussion on like what are actually the best practices to teach creative writing because um, rhetoric and composition they have like this whole thing down like they do empirical research they like say we think this will work and then they actually do like a scientific study to see if it like improves and they have metrics and so I do think creative writing would be a little bit more difficult to do that because you know you have to have these like specific hypotheses and markers and stuff but um, even if they just sort of like followed the rhetoric and composition um, route or like tried to recreate some of theirs that would probably be pretty um, get some results and there is um since I graduated from that program in 2017, so it's pretty still pretty recent within the past five years, there's been a um, organization called the Creative Writing uh, Research, or there's some um, some new organization that specifically focuses in pedagogy and creative writing. But ultimately, as I was researching this, I sort of got disillusioned from MFAs because I sort of realized that like it would just be either paying a lot of money or Um, some of them are fully funded programs but either way it would just be like spending a lot of time in workshop settings and I felt like um, that wasn't a great use of my time and honestly I feel like I have gotten that same amount of um, attention or like critique from peers just by finding online writing groups that are free and you know it's like a community Um, so um, I really after after really studying like oh there's not very much 
like research and creative writing pedagogy. I think I read like every single at the time paper that had been published and they all just sort of circularly referenced each other. And um, yeah, so I was like, uh, maybe I don't need to do an MFA, but, um, and I think I, I don't think I want to go back to school anymore, but if I did, it would probably be more in a, like a PhD in creative writing, which I think is more focused on like that pedagogy and um, actually like trying to make, make it, make the teaching of it um, better. It's real. that's such an interesting idea and concept um, because I think you know, to your point, I, I feel like the MFA really kind of exists to do two things. One is to try to help you understand a little bit more about the technical elements of building story. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's some element in how you learn that I feel is 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 about understanding like the technical jargon of putting together a functional story. But I mm-hmm. also think that how how necessary is that, you know, for mm-hmm. any real creative, right? Because I think that you create by doing a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that like many writers who are probably even listening to this podcast, they don't necessarily have an MFA. They, mm-hmm. you know, are but they're still writing. They're still yeah. creating. They're still learning. And I think there's there, there needs to be a space for people to learn how to write and to kind of mm-hmm. practice their writing in a place that is, you know, accommodating to them and is going to assist them in growing. But I also think like, do you really need to spend tens of thousands of dollars, you know, for that piece of paper? Yeah, I mean, I, re- I really do think if you can find um, a good community of writers, like there's a lot on Discord um that pop up and there's I'm sure you could find them on like Reddit or other social media sites but if you find a good like online community or even um sometimes your like cities might have like writing groups I think as long as you find like a group that's sort of like a mixture of people who have you know a lot of experience and people who don't um and you just really try to like become part of that community you'll end up where people will you know, help you and critique your work. But I also think just reading a lot will help you. Um, Even reading craft books will help. Um, Sometimes reading craft books helps you decide that's not how I think it should be, or that's not how (laughs) I want to do it. But, but I think that's still valuable. Um, But yeah, I think um, there probably are some MFA programs that are better than others. But when I was doing my research, it seemed like most of them were just sort of like, you go there and you just do workshops, like only for like two years. And then you have like a year for your thesis. And I was like, I don't, I've been in a ton of creative writing workshops. And I, at the time, and even now I'm just like, I don't need that experience Mm. (laughs) anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's also interesting the concept of creative writing pedagogy because I you know to your point a lot of these MFAs that I do see are very workshop oriented Mm -hmm. and in the few writing classes that I've attended uh in my undergraduate I can't say that they were terribly helpful Mm -hmm. in teaching me you know kind of the craft of of uh composition and yeah. I, I say composition in in that mode of you know composing mm-hmm. a story of putting to, together a story 
Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about familiar story structures and that sort of thing, but I, I was getting a lot of that too in my own literary analysis classes. And I don't mean to say that literary analysis is the same as creative writing, but I think that when it, it comes to the pedagogy, they're very much intertwined. And I mm -hmm. don't know that there are a whole lot of classes or a whole lot of, of professors even who could really sit down and teach you things like how to hone your voice, right? Mm -hmm. Or what it, that even necessarily means. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there are terms that we can apply to learning, mm -hmm. but I don't necessarily know that learn in the, the same kind of capacity. Yeah, there was, um, and I, I have taught intro to creative writing one time um, when I was at the University of Louisville um, because I ended up being like, um, the, it was like, it's ridiculous, but I was basically the um, administrative assistant for the creative writing department as like a graduate student. But they like the title they gave me was like assistant director to the creative <laughs> writing department. So I'm like, okay, I'll take that title. But um, I used this, um, a modified version of this assignment when I taught that. And I was very genuinely happy and surprised that my students all did very well with it. But it was an assignment that actually did come from my, um, a graduate, one of my graduate level creative writing classes was we did mostly do the workshop, but then we had this one assignment where the professor wanted us to take, his assignment was three books, um, to take three books and look at and pick one craft element, and then um, sort of analyze that, like do a deep dive of just that craft element in those three books, like how did the author use this craft element, um, do you think they succeeded, uh, what are some ways they maybe differed from the norm, and so I think that's actually like if if um, that's actually a really good, um, I would say, assignment to sort of bridge that gap is to pick if you are struggling with voice or if you're struggling with like point of view um, to pick a piece, a book, a short story, a poem, pick something that you like that you think is really done well and go through and read it and um, really just while you're reading it, focus on just that one craft element and make notes about how you think the author succeeded in doing what or like what you think they were trying to do. Did they succeed? What are some techniques that you noticed that they used? And then I think you can um, you can do that with as many different craft elements and books you want. And I think that is a great exercise to sort of um, hone your craft. Like I said, I um, modified it for my intro to creative writing class and was very um, happy that my students did a really good job with that. Yeah, that is great advice, honestly. Um, I love I love just getting getting anyone kind of interested in in reading and analyzing what it is that they read, you know, kind of thinking about not in a utility sense, right? But mm -hmm. but more kind of thinking more deeply about, you know, what are the choices that Mm -hmm, a particular exactly. author makes because, you know in in creating meaning mm -hmm. here yeah yeah because um i think like that's the the biggest thing in creative writing is that it's all a choice that the author is making and you want your choices to be intentional there's a lot of like rules floating around you know on the internet of like don't don't have a prologue don't do this um <laughs> and i think it's really just like 
you can you can do whatever you want but if you're not doing it with like a specific intention or goal then mm. it can not it sometimes doesn't work very well so what are some of the things that you feel like you're challenging yourself to hone you know what are some of the the creative choices <laughs> that you like to make and how do they kind of serve your purposes um, I would, I think some of my weaknesses in writing that I am um, still working on are emotions. Um, I think that, and, and I think these are kind of intertwined. It's like emotion and that balance of showing and telling, because mm. like I said, I have taken so many creative writing workshops that I feel like it was really drilled into me, like show, don't tell, show, don't tell. But to the point where I'm I could I can get onto the extreme of like I'm only showing and sometimes you do just need to tell sometimes mm. you do just need to like say an emotion um on the page and um and so you know I think that um when I was you know revising though I think that was like probably the biggest piece or biggest part that I worked on when I was revising Wretched Valley was really just trying to heighten the emotion um, of the characters and the piece and to yeah like really balance that not like showing so much that it becomes like this purple prose and people don't like the reader is just like I don't know <laughs> what's going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah you you definitely have to have something to anchor your reading right um so that your your reader knows the context to put mm -hmm. it I for what it's worth I definitely feel like this wretched valley worked really well emotionally for me um I, I felt like I could I could feel a lot of the terror and the frustration and the pride you know I I felt a lot of that through your characters as they uh <laughs> kind of <laughs> decomposed through that whole, <laughs> whole novel. I'm glad so, to hear that it worked <laughs> yeah yes I I think it did um I do want to give you some space to kind of brag on yourself a little bit though, <laughs> because I think that you do a lot of things really effectively. So, you know, what, what do you think were your strengths in this novel and, and what were some of the things that you are just like the proudest of as this book is coming out? Yeah. Um, I think I am very proud of the first chapter um, I definitely think, um, and people can go read that actually right now on pace.com. Um, what a first they, chapter. They, yeah, they, they posted the first chapter. Um, and the story behind the first chapter is that, um, I, I think at the time I was like sort of starting to think about this project and like starting to put just like my general thoughts of the book and the idea and the plot together. I learned about the Jatloff Pass incident which um, inspired the book, but the book is like not about the Jatloff Pass incident. It just was inspired by that. And the way that that, um, and that really um, inspired like the the opening chapter, because the way that you always hear about that incident, which is like in the 1950s, these hikers went into the mountains in Russia and they sort of disappeared and the way you always hear about that is like, you know, they disappeared and then months later, their bodies were found in all these weird ways. Like this, this really weird scene, like um, one was missing his tongue and his eyes and there were some that were naked. There were some that were like wearing 
the naked people's clothes and they were going back to the tent which had been cut open from the inside and for um I think I don't think we I don't think anybody like truly knows what happened for a long time there was just like all these wild theories um and I think now they think it was like a specific form of an avalanche that was like just a chunk of ice or something um but yeah, so that learning about that really influenced how I structured the book where the opening chapter, the people find at least three, they find three of the four hikers bodies and they're in these really weird um, ways. And then the story backs up and sort of tells you um, sort of you, you as the reader get to learn how that happened. The investigators never really <laughs> get to learn, but the reader does. Um, and so I, that first chapter also um, was this weird, and I don't know that this will ever happen to me again, but it was one of those moments where, like, the words woke me up. Like, I can remember I wrote most, I wrote a draft of it in my bathroom on my phone at 3 a.m. because <laughs> it was just, like, in my head, and I had to get it out, and like I said, that usually does not happen to me, and I don't know that it will ever happen to me again, um, and a lot of it is still, in the final product like the first sentence never changed i know that for sure um That's amazing yeah it's and a, <laughs> it's a powerful first chapter yeah i'm very proud of that first chapter um and like i said any you can go read it on paste um their website they posted uh the first chapter the whole thing on there and um i i think one of my strength horror writing is definitely body horror and um, as well as um, just writing anxiety, because I have anxiety and I'm very intimately familiar with that. So that's pretty easy for me to write onto the page. I can absolutely attest to all of the things that you're proudest of. <laughs> uh, this book, I mean, this book fucked me up um, for, for so for so many different reasons. There's there's a lot to kind of chew through. So before we get into some of the more kind of thematic elements of this book, um, if you would explain for the listeners, um, what is this wretched Valley about? Okay. This wretched Valley is um, about these four hikers who go into the Kentucky woods in Livingston, Kentucky. Um, they, two of them are geology students who are trying to complete their PhDs and one is a climber and then the fourth is her boyfriend and they go into the woods thinking that they are finding the next hot rock climbing spot um, and that they're going to you know get all this fame and fortune but they've actually been lured by an evil sentient forest that wants to eat them. <laughs> I, I want to <laughs> unpack all of this because <laughs> there are so many elements in here that I just, I mean, just absolutely wrecked me. Um, I'll, I'll paint a picture for you just a little bit. My parents just moved to Bella Vista, Arkansas, and Bella Vista is absolutely beautiful, but there's not a whole lot of kind of centralized development. It's mm -hmm. still absolutely mostly forests and uh, kind of like these little ravines um, around some of the, the lakes in this area. So my parents bought a couple of lots to build their house on. They built this house and it's just out in the middle of the trees, just, you know, kind of out <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. It's beautiful. But as I'm reading this wretched valley, which is all about these 
hikers, these uh, rock climbers <laughs> that wander off into the Kentucky wilderness to develop a new rock climbing wall. Um, I just could not remove myself from the fact that I was also reading this book at my <laughs> parents' house around all of these trees and thinking about how sinister it is um, to just have kind of this totally alien intelligence um, ruining people's lives. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great book for people to read while they go camping. You should bring it, should bring it with you. <laughs> no anxiety at all, right? <laughs> so you you are a rock climber. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose maybe we can kind of start there a little bit. What what appeals to you about, you know, rock climbing and, and that unique form of, you know, exercise and sport? Yeah, I mean, I think rock climbing is definitely growing in popularity, but I think it's one of those exercise types where you either somebody brings you to the rock climbing gym and you either just fall in love with it immediately or you don't. And um, so I was one once where I fell in love with it immediately. And I really like it because as a form of exercise, um, like I have ADHD and as a form of exercise, it really helps with that. Like it's not boring. It's not the same. Some people might argue that it's the same movement over and over again, but it's basically like it engages my whole body as well as like it's a puzzle. So I have to think about um, like where I'm moving on the wall. I have to think about like how to position my body because I'm pretty short. So sometimes I have to think about how can I position my body so that I can reach the next thing without jumping because I don't like jumping on the wall. <laughs> so so for me, it's really just that aspect of like that having a puzzle to piece together. It's like mental and physical exercise for me. And it's a great way to build strength. And um, usually it's also um, a pretty community based sport like there tends to just be like a community around it um even bouldering where you don't you can climb alone um if you're bouldering especially in a gym um I probably wouldn't recommend bouldering by yourself outside but <laughs> I mean some people do because rock climbing is a dangerous sport but um in a gym in a bouldering gym I think a lot of people do like show up alone but there's always community there's always another person who might be trying like the same route that you're trying and you sort of bond over that. And sometimes you can, if you want to like pick apart, like how you might do the the problem. And so I think um, those, those things are really what make it great for me. And um, it's also something where you can like travel and um, like climb outside and there's always a climbing gym, but um, now there's always a climbing gym, but um, but yeah, you can like use it as um, vacation destinations, like go somewhere to climb outside. And it's a pretty mm. um, besides all the gear, like if you have all the gear, then that makes your vacation a little bit more inexpensive because you're just like going outside somewhere. Um, and usually there's not like fees or anything. There's some some places that you do have to like pay for parking and stuff like that or like a pass. But for the most part, it's um, pretty inexpensive if you the gear is expensive like I said but um, sometimes you can find that used sometimes like I said with the community you can like befriend someone who has all the gear <laughs> and go with them and I haven't found another exercise that hits all of those boxes for me forgive my ignorance but what what is the difference between rock climbing and bouldering um so rock climbing is just the general like 
term for all of it. And then there's different types. There's bouldering, which is usually um, the if you're indoors, the walls are shorter. If you're outdoors, the rock is not as tall. So it's usually like, I don't know, like 20 feet or less of um, route and you don't have any ropes. You just are climbing um, on the wall or the rock without any um, like ropes or harnesses. And you usually have like pads at the bottom. So if you fall, you'll fall on the pads. And then there's um, top roping, which is what's in a lot of gyms. And that can go, you know, as high as you have rope. And that's where the rope is already there. And you just have, you have a belayer at the bottom and you have um, the climber has a harness and it's roped into the harness, but the rope is already there. So you don't have to put it up. And then there's sport climbing, which is where you have to place the rope up as you go up the route, but there's already anchors so there's already like little metal pieces for you to clip mm. into the wall that are um, permanently there so you just need quick draws which are like two carabiners um, with like a little piece of uh not rope but like paracord or something nylon in between them and you are just like clipping one end into the anchor and one end to your rope so that if you fall um you'll not fall to the ground <laughs> and then there is trad climbing or traditional climbing where you are putting that safety gear, there's no anchors, you're putting what are called cams um, uh, into the wall, which can be like a little uh, hexagon type piece or like a little chunk of metal that you sort of fit into a groove so that it doesn't come out. Or some of them are winged. So you like, they're like uh, two pieces of metal that are together and you can like squeeze together, put in the rock and then you let go and they expand, um, sort of like a wall anchor. Um, there's like some winged wall anchors, but those are the the main um, forms of climbing. And I have the 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 climbing in the book is trad climbing because they're going to a new right. spot, so there's like nothing established in the wall. But I have personally never done that type of climbing. The like the most advanced thing I've done is like sport climbing. I'm like putting the rope up as you go. I I haven't done any trad climbing, but I have. Um, friends who who have and had a question I would just ask them like is this correct <laughs> it's helpful to have those friends when you're writing something yeah I I feel like there's just kind of a natural setup for some horror here you know mm -hmm. with with any of these kind of extreme sports I mean gosh the descent is how many years old now is it, mm -hmm. is it 20 years old I think, yeah, I think this it's almost isn't 2004, so almost yeah, 20. so almost 20 years. Um, and and we all know that that is just like a a beloved darling of horror because it mm -hmm. it opens up so many just intense moments. How do you feel like the rock climbing really opened up some moments for tension and horror in this wretched valley? Yeah, um, well, as you said, or as we have stated, rock climbing is just in general, inherently a dangerous sport. Um, you know, even if you have all the safety measures in place, things can still break. Things can, um, like, especially with trad climbing, if you, you know, put the cam or the safety gear in wrong um, or not as stable and you fall, it can like rip out. Um, so it's just like inherently dangerous on its own. So it's pretty easy to build tension um from the climbing scenes but because of the setting I created where um I guess I don't know how to really say this without it being like a spoiler but <laughs> so it's it's basically like a, like I said like a trap that the forest created so um for them to find so it's kind of um 
I was able to play around with not only like that tension that just naturally occurs, but just the fact that like there's something supernatural going on. I like to, I think um, a good way to describe the the forest entity is it's very similar to the wilderness in Yellow Jackets, mm. um, especially like season one. See, I haven't seen Yellow Jackets, but as I was reading, I I was getting major <laughs> Scott Smith's The Ruins vibes. Um, mm-hmm. Just a very kind of intense, sinister intelligence you kind of almost have to question whether or not there is an intelligence there i mean clearly Mm -hmm. there is but it's not the way that we would characterize like a human intelligence yeah element of this kind of paranormal otherly intelligence um is also really interesting in horror because i think that we do see these kinds of intelligences represented but it's very different from your other kind of boogeyman it's different from your ghosts it's different from your malevolent spirits or your demons you know what were some of the things that you were thinking about in trying to craft this antagonist for your characters yeah um and i know an early early draft had um i actually had little snippets from the point of view of the land that got um taken out and i think that was a, a good decision i think at the time i was like oh i really i think that's like unique and i want to keep it in there but um i think i like reread them recently and i was like oh no that was a good decision <laughs> to take them out <laughs> um cuz i think it it adds like a little bit more of an ambiguity or um to the book and just like a little bit of more of an unreliable sort of aspect to it. Um, I think that's like one piece that I honestly like, I don't remember when that part of the story came about. It seems like it was just sort of like always there. I know um, when I, the the story originally was created when I was um, actually at the rock climbing gym. And I just kind of started with the question of like, how can I put rock climbing into a horror book? or into a horror story. And it definitely delved from there and somewhere along the line. Um, I think maybe it was, I mentioned this in the acknowledgement, but I have a friend who uh, we used to have this tradition. He moved away, unfortunately, but we used to have this tradition where every election day we would vote and then we would drive to Red River Gorge and we would just climb all day and not look at our phones or the results or anything. And by the time we got home, it was already like set. So um we sort of like took that as like a day to get away but um I think it was on one of those trips where he mentioned LIDAR and said that he um wanted to use it he actually had the idea to use it to scan um to see if there was any other like undiscovered rock climbing spots and I asked him like can I use that in a book and he said yeah so I think that's sort of where the idea sort of sprouted was maybe it was like and like I said this is one piece that like I wish I remembered how it really came about but I think it was something like what if they like scan this space and it looks really promising but it's actually like evil which you know sort of turned into um turned into that idea of like it's a sentient evil place that has actually lured them there and I think there was um I, I guess uh, I will just say one character, the last character's demise, because um, it's like the last scene. I don't want to say specifically, <laughs> but if you've read the book, you probably will know what I'm talking about. I th- also had that image very, very early on where that character, um, they 
uh, I don't know how to say this actually without like spoiling it, but basically there was an image. <laughs> I had this image of um, like a character being like somehow surrounded by like a circle of rock. And the only thing that they could do was like climb out of it. Mm. Um, and I think that also contributed to the idea of like an evil sort of sentient forest. And from there it sort of progressed into like, well, what if this is like an ancient thing that's just always been there which inspired those little like historical interludes throughout the book the book very much brought to mind to me things like jeff vandermeer's annihilation and stanislaw lem's solaris which Mm -hmm. deal with these concepts of like an alien intelligence and and really put into stark distinction what we know about our own human intelligences and how we gauge our intelligence against some kind of alien other. Mm -hmm. It's dissettling, I think, to (laughs) think about the fact that there may be other forms of intelligence, other concepts of a living creature or a living being, a living space that does not mesh with our human intelligence mm-hmm. and our ability to measure that intelligence. So we're playing we're playing off the unknown, which is already scary enough. Mm-hmm. But but then we also can't quite understand, you know, <laughs> kind of the malevolence of something that just doesn't even speak our language, doesn't have mm-hmm. our same material needs. Um it is an existential fear mm-hmm. that I think that this book does really well well thank you um yeah i mean i think if like you don't typically think of land um as being sentient or having any sort of intentions or goals or motivation Mm -hmm. or wants or hungers um so i think that is um an idea that was very intriguing for me to explore um more so than just like i think um like you know, there's always, I feel like it's very pretty common um, to have like haunted woods or like a space is haunted, but even that is still like human intelligence. It's just dead humans. Yeah. Um, but this idea, yeah, that there's just like a, a patch of earth or land that is normally considered inanim- um, inanimate or, you know, uh, normally considered to like just be matter Um for that to have those wants and needs and for those to even be like evil or um maybe you wouldn't even say evil it's just sort of urges that it is acting upon um i mean i think we as humans would say that it's evil because it is eating people but um maybe <laughs> for <laughs> maybe for it it's sort of more animalistic it's just it's hungry so it's feeding it also plays in with the psychological horror of some of these characters and the anxiety that I think the characters suffer throughout the book. One of the things that I felt was most interesting about the characters was that, you know, it's not just that, oh, a bad thing happens and they Mm -hmm. get, (laughs) they get (laughs) eaten by the earth, right? Mm -hmm. It's like they have these predilections, I think, toward the worst of human tendencies Mm -hmm. and those are only exacerbated by their interaction with this kind of alien intelligence that feeds them what Mm -hmm. they 
you know, kind of most want. And yeah, and there's this dual agency, right? This mm-hmm. this kind of desire, this will for humans to kind of shape their lives and shape their environments mm-hmm. to the things that they want. And that is in direct contradiction with this alien intelligence that very much wants its own thing and mm-hmm. to have its own agency, you know, over these humans mm-hmm. that would otherwise establish their dominance over this environmental space. Yeah. Um, one of the big themes I sort of had in my head as I was writing it was just sort of this idea that it specifically lures people who are looking to use it for their own purposes or their own selfish goals so for you know like the main cast of characters they want to use the land to increase their own fame and fortune um the dylan the climber she wants to be she's just been signed by um a rock climbing company as like a sponsorship and she really wants this to be like her breakout trip where she just really becomes like this famous well-known climber and clay who is the geology student he wants his research to um, become like famous and well-known so that people will pay him to sort of repeat the that research in other places Um, and some of the other like we see characters from um, prohibition using the land to create moonshine for their own fame and fortune we see um colonizers from the 1700s coming in and just taking the land for themselves because they think that they are owed that or that they can um we see teenagers maybe a little (laughs) less self a little you know less egregious than some other characters but we see teenagers going in there and like littering and just sort of not respecting the land and um i think that is a big aspect of the book um and the idea of that um space is that it's almost like it it can only lure that type of person to it because Mm. i think um if someone did sort of more so respect the land or they weren't looking for um that sort of space to use for their own purposes they wouldn't probably even come across that patch of land they would just leave it alone it's an interesting conflict too. And I think in this particular political moment, as we talk about the climate and, you know, Mm -hmm. really like what have we done to the earth itself? Uh, And, and of course the earth will survive, but will we survive Mm -hmm. what we've done to it? Um, We've, we've kind of made it into our own, our own making, Mm -hmm. but it brings up this classical conflict of, uh, you know, man versus nature, um, Mm -hmm. this kind of, primal exploration that I think has been explored in plenty of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but but here it's given a little bit more nuance, a little bit more, I don't know, kind of a, a direct antagonism that I, I find absolutely very terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here it's definitely, like I said, intentional. Um, like I said, I took out the parts in the book that are like the sections that were directly in the point of view of the land but um as i was still writing the rest of it it is sentient it is um like an entity that is acting um and making choices i guess it's like (laughs) um it's not just like an inert area that's haunted it's actually like the land um is the the malicious entity 
Well, I, I absolutely, I, I could keep talking about this all day. I don't want to give <laughs> away, you know, the whole of the book, um, <laughs> except to say that I absolutely love this book and it, it terrified me. I mean, it really <laughs> just scared me <laughs> much more than I, I think anything else. And I, I think it's because of that kind of like the quote unquote unknowable evil, right? Like this, mm -hmm. you know, totally foreign, um, non-human intelligence that uh seeks to antagonize us yeah well i'm really glad to hear that it scared you because you know as the author i've read the thing like five million times and by the <laughs> end by the you know by the time you're going through like the last copy edits to catch anything um i think one part of it is like your brain is in a different sphere than just like reading it for the story because mm. you're looking for things like i said Sylvia had was wearing glasses as they were walking into the woods and then I never mentioned her glasses again so we we took that out but like you're <laughs> at that at that point you're looking for like tiny things like that and you've also just like read it like I said like you've read it uh, so many times that um and you know all the details and so I'm glad to hear that it is actually scary because you know it got you get to a point I think um <laughs> in this traditional publishing process where you're like is this even good or is this like it's too late now but like <laughs> is it good <laughs> yes the the answer is this is even good this is this okay, is very good, good. I, re I really like this book a lot so circling back to uh, butcher cabin books mm -hmm. um you know you you opened butcher cabin books in uh was it last year that it opened yeah, october 2022 yeah so the the tail end of a pandemic mm -hmm. um <laughs> what was kind of your impulse for opening butcher cabin books and you know how do you kind of think of it as serving your community um, well, it was kind of a lot of um, factors that sort of just coalesced together. Um, and I feel a little bad, but I would rather be like upfront with people because we've had people ask us like, I want to do this in my town. And they ask us for advice. And I have to be like, well, we had all of these factors that you're probably not going to have. Like my um, parents, my mom is my business partner, and uh, my parents own the building that the store is in. Um, so we got lucky in that sense in that, you know, like one of the business owners is the landlord, um, which most people aren't going to have that situation. And, um, we also, because of that, we're able to get away with not paying any rent until we open the doors. Um, which again, most people are not going to be able to do that. Um, we just between, all of like my parents, just between like my parents, my spouse and my knowledge and just people we know, we were able to do all of the renovations ourselves. Um, and we were able to keep um, some of the, like the, if you go inside, there's like this wood paneling that was already there. Um, we just decided to keep that and sort of lean into that cabin vibe. So, um, so yeah, we were able to sort of, our startup costs were, a lot lower than I think most people trying to do this would be, um, which, you know, was very helpful. But it was also that um, the building that it's in uh, was my dad owns a business called um, Curry Sound and Security. And um, that was sort of, again, another serendipitous thing where that business was like sort of passed down in ownership from um, Mr. Curry, who started it to my grandfather, to my dad. Um, 
And it was just, um, it had been in that space, that building that they owned since like the late sixties or early seventies. And um, for probably decades or, you know, like definitely a decade, if not longer, um, maybe I would say probably not into, not since like the late 90s, even um, they didn't really have any walk in customers. It was just used as like an office space and like storage. Um, and so they my parents were kind of like thinking about getting a different tenant in there anyway to like um you know, make a little bit more money, utilize the space since the street it's on um, was sort of kind of being up and coming. And so that was sort of where, you know, my mom and I were like, well, let's try to start this bookstore. And um, at the time, I it was like we'd been working on it for about a year or more, like a year and a half before we opened it. Um, and at the time, I was like, I think like uh, I sold this book, my agent sold this book in April of 2021 like April or May um and even before that like I was just getting really involved in the horror community and I was learning more about all of these you know really good books and presses that were coming out in the indie sphere and um even some of the bigger like publishers it would just be this frustration of like going into a bookstore and just not being able to find the book you're looking for mm -hmm. um most at the time I think it's changing now that horror is a genre that's like a little bit more prominent or popular right now um but at the time um you would go into a bookstore and they wouldn't have a horror section so you'd have to like look at science fiction if there any horror there go just like mm -hmm. browse through the general fiction and really it was very difficult to just have that experience of like going into a store and just like browsing the horror shelves to like find something new or find something you hadn't discovered before um and so that was definitely a motivation as well as like I said just wanting to give shelf space to those smaller indie presses um but um our space it works well for our current space because it's very small we're just about 400 square feet right now um and um so it the one genre <laughs> fills it very well we <laughs> we do have some space where we can expand um when we're sort of slowly trying to make that expansion um but so but i we don't have like a set timeline or goal for that right now we're just sort mm. of like in the very beginning stages of that um, but we have books that range all age ranges. We have like picture board books. We have middle grade YA. Um, we have nonfiction. We have thrillers. We have a pretty small right now sci-fi fantasy section. We've got some classics. Um, but then the rest of the store is horror, adult horror. And it's broken. We have like a giant general horror section. We have um, like BIPOC, LGBTQ sections. We have graphic novels, um, poetry. We have stories. Um, we have Stephen King and Joe Hill quarantined in their own area, as well as <laughs> Anne Rice, Michael Crichton, and Dean Koonster also in their own area. And um, we do have some horror soundtrack vinyl as oh, well. Wow. Um, it's That section is pretty small right now. It's kind of like a, a catch-22 for us at the moment because um, it doesn't sell very well, but I think it's like one of those things where it's like, well, maybe like if we 
built it up would it get more people to realize that Mm. it's there but then Mm. i also don't want to spend a bunch of money for stock that's just going to sit there um but i do think that's probably more like a marketing issue like i don't know how to get people who would be interested in that to know that we have it um sort of thing but um yeah we sell the vinyl and we sell new books online um but we do have a mix of new and used um and one area that um I think is very cool as we have a paperbacks from hell section where you never know, (laughs) you never know what you're going to find there. It's just a bunch of like old um, out of print or old editions of um, horror and sci-fi paperbacks. I love that. I love that so much. So as a horror writer, you know, with a a book about to be represented on these (laughs) shelves, you know, um, how do you feel about, you know, kind of this growth of horror and the community that we see continuing to grow around this genre. Yeah, I mean, I hope that it it's it continues to grow and find its audience. Um, and yeah, I hope it, it's here to stay um, for sure. Not just because like I own this bookstore, but just because it's the genre that I write in and that I like reading. Um, so yeah, I hope that it does have staying power um and yeah it's been it's been interesting to see um some other stores pop up since we've opened um and just like the general attitude seems to be still pretty on the up and up for horror so as we kind of close out um first and foremost where can people support you online either by buying books from your store or perhaps tuning into your personal writing journey for future projects yeah so the everything for the store um is besides twitter or x or whatever it is now is um at horror bookstore so our website is horrorbookstore.com um our instagram and tiktok which we don't post to very much because we're old and don't know how to use it but um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think Blue Sky 2 is at Horror Bookstore and then Twitter is at Horror Books underscore, underscore KY. And um, for my socials, I'm at underscore Jenny Kiefer pretty much everywhere. I think Blue Sky, I was able to get just Jenny Kiefer without the underscore, but um, TikTok, Instagram, X, Twitter are all um, underscore Jenny Kiefer. And then my website's JennyKiefer.com. And lastly, when does This Wretched Valley come out for those who are anxiously awaiting it? <laughs> um, it comes out on January 16th, 2024. Oh, well, thank you so much mm-hmm. for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing um, your thoughts about the book. Thank mm-hmm. you for sharing the book. I mean, gosh, yeah. um, I, I I, mean, I'll send you my uh, psychiatry bill because um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so scary, but Uh, No, truly, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a wonderful chat. Yeah, it's been really great. Thanks for having me on.